We are in a message series here on Sunday mornings from the New Testament book of Acts. The series is called Spirit, Mission, and Drama. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. But I want to begin not there. I actually want to begin in Psalm 23. And in particular, just the first three verses. So we're going to have these on the screen. And I want you to read these out loud with me. Here we go. Let me hear you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Good job. Way to go. We love this psalm. It's one of the most beloved and often quoted sections in all of our Bibles. We know it well. We probably know it by heart. And we know the five attributes of God that are right here, right at the first. I'm going to run through them. We lack nothing because he's our shepherd. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. And he leads us in paths of righteousness. Those are all good. They're all needed. They're absolutely necessary. But they all imply one central truth that, and this is it, that God has power over us. That it's he who makes us do things. And that it's he who does things to us. The, the image is rather clear here in Psalm 23 that we are powerless. We're powerless before God. Now, this is no surprise. It's not breaking news, not some great truth, because circumstantially, in the matter of a few hours on any given day, we realize our powerlessness. But the glaring truth here, it's not implied, it's right there in Psalm 23, is that God does these things for us for one specific reason. And here it is for the sake of His name. In Psalm 23, we learn that God cares for us. God cares for us for the sake of his name. Not for the sake of his own reputation. His chief motivation, his chief motivation in his care for us is not us. It's not you. It's not me. It's himself. And look, this might, this just might come as a shock to you. And if it does, you're going to be, you're going to be okay. Here's probably why it shocked you. We are a very self-conscious culture. I mean, after all, we live in the age of the selfie, right? We live in the age of the selfie. This quick self-portrait. We love ourselves so much that we love taking pictures of ourselves. We love it. We celebrate who we are. We can't get enough of us. We love selfies. The selfie culture is growing, by the way. If you have the latest iPhone, you might know about this. I don't have it. But there are new selfies now called .5 selfies. I just learned about this this week. You can take a picture of yourself, and it looks like a piece of abstract art worthy of Picasso. We're inventing new ways to take selfies, right? And that's not all. You might know the toy company Hasbro. Well, Hasbro has partnered with another company called Form Labs. And Form Labs calls themselves the world's leading 3D printing company. These two have combined and partnered to, to produce something called the Hasbro Selfie Series. And here's what you can do. You can upload your selfie, your favorite selfie. You can upload it to their website. And they will 3D print 
your face on the face of a toy action figure. Yeah, you can be a hero. Congratulations. I actually think I want one of those. So it, it may actually come as a surprise that God does care about you. But he cares about his name and his reputation far more. This truth isn't just located in Psalm 23. It's also in the Old Testament prophetic book of Ezekiel. Because God does more for us for the sake of his name. And we learn in Ezekiel that God rescues us for the sake of his name. He rescues us for the sake of his name. We actually find it in two chapters in Ezekiel. The first time we find it is in Ezekiel chapter 20. And this is where God tells the story of Israel's rescue from Egyptian slavery. And in that chapter, he says, he says it three times, that in spite of the world's largest rescue operation, freeing the Hebrew slaves, that the Israelites acted in dishonorable ways. They worshipped the false gods of Egypt, the, the, the nation that had enslaved them, who were actually powerless to rescue them. And so God says in Ezekiel 20, he says it three times, that he was so angered by their behavior, he was so angered by it, that he actually wanted to destroy them, to kill them. But he relented. He didn't. I'm going to read it to you. It's from Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord says, Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name. If in your Bibles you should underline that. That it should, that my name should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. God says the same thing again in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is verses 22 through 24. When he promises their rescue again, this time not from slavery, but from exile. Listen to this, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Again, if you've got your Bibles, you should underline that. Which you have profaned among the nations from which you came, to which you came. Verse 23, and I will vindicate Listen to this. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. And I love this last phrase. When through you, when all this stuff I'm about to do, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God rescues his people. He cares for them, cares for you, their futures, our futures, our well-being. He cares for us because it is his reputation that's on the line, and it's not ours. And you know why this matters? It matters because it frees us from earning that rescue. It frees us from trying to weasel our way into it. We lack nothing. God supplies rest and restoration and leading for us, but he does all this for the sake of his name. 
Is there anything more liberating than that? I don't think so. God also, he also acts on behalf of his name through answering our prayers. It's, in fact, it's the way that Jesus taught us to pray. We learn from Matthew chapter 6 that God answers our prayers for the sake of his name. Let's read this together. You know this. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, finish it for me, hallowed be your name. You've read it. You know it. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Our prayers, our requests to God are not appeals on behalf of our character and our reputation. We appeal to God because he's holy, because his name is holy. We begin our prayers with an appeal to the holiness of God's name. And that appeal is the umbrella under which we ask and request our understanding of God's holy name ensures that everything we ask and everything that God does will be done for the sake of hallowing and sanctifying his name and not for the sake of our wants. So let's follow this since we're here. We need to follow this to its rightful conclusion. Every subsequent request in the Lord's Prayer. You know it. If you don't, you can read it. Every subsequent request is an appeal to the holiness of God's name. If we receive that for which we ask, then our gifts are deemed by God to further enhance the holiness of his name. But the antithesis of this is also correct. And by the way, this is the only paradigm that makes prayer make sense. If we don't receive that for which we ask, then those refusals are also deemed by God to further enhance the holiness of his name and his name alone. Because God, he does all things. Everything he does is for the sake of his name. You and I, we also act and live for the sake of his name. In fact, we make disciples for the sake of his name. It's into this name we are told to baptize disciples. You know, this is the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28. Let's read it. Verse 18, and Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore, verse 19, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We make disciples in the name of Jesus. Not for us. Not to increase attendance. Not to increase membership. We do this for the name of God. By the way, the word name here in Matthew 28, the word name is a singular word, which means it's not plural. The text does not say into the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's into the name because they all share the same name. They're all the same person. Learners and followers of Jesus 
are to be immersed into a life that says we are powerless. And we agree that our salvation is done because God values first and chiefly the holiness of his name. This is grace. This is sweet, liberating grace. It is a saving, it's a saving grace because we are saved. We're saved for the sake of his name because it is in this name and this name alone that salvation is found. Salvation belongs to our God. And him alone. Let's read this. We find this in a very foundational statement in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. This is said and spoken by the Apostle Peter. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among us by which we must be saved. Remarkable statement. Remarkable statement. But it's the result of another statement earlier said by Peter. And this is from Acts chapter 3 when he healed a man afflicted with paralysis. This is Acts chapter 3 verse 6. Listen to what Peter says. I have no silver and gold, Peter says, but what I do have I give to you. In the name, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he does. Walk for the first time. This man walked for the first time in his life because there is power in this name. There is wonder-working power in the name of Jesus. About 700 years or so after David wrote Psalm 23, the entire Old Testament was translated from its original languages to the more popular more recognized, more accepted, more common, spoken Greek language. And it was translated, by the way, by Jewish translators. That's important because it was the Jewish translators who knew the languages of the Old Testament and translated it into the Greek language. This Greek translation, by the way, you've heard of this. This Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. You can Google it later. It's a big word, the Septuagint. The Septuagint was incredibly popular. So much so that when you read your New Testament and you find Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, those are more often than not quoted from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint would have been the version of the Old Testament that was most familiar to every apostle and every author of our New Testament. And the Septuagint used familiar Greek words when translating the Old Testament. In other words, they didn't translate it, these Jewish translators did not translate the Old Testament into some unreachable, hard-to-read literary masterpiece. They translated this Old Testament into the Greek the way that people spoke. And this same common spoken Greek language was the language used when our New Testament was originally written. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm telling you this. Here's why. Here's why I'm telling you this. So, returning to Psalm 23 and Ezekiel chapter 20 and Ezekiel chapter 36, the, the passages we've read this morning, 
when you read in those passages the phrase, the Lord, in Hebrew, that word is Yahweh. It is, the, it is God's self-given name. It's what he calls himself at the burning bush with Abraham. And to the Jewish people, there is no word in the Hebrew language that is more precious than the name of God. It's so precious, in fact, that they refused to even speak it. So when these Jewish translators are translating the Old Testament into common Greek, they needed a Greek word for God's name. They needed a word that, that they could say that was common in the language. And so they used the word that you've probably heard. It's the word kyrios. Kyrios. It's the Greek name, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew name of God, for Yahweh. And it's a word in the Greek language that meant absolute ownership, unrivaled power. So the Lord, the sovereign God, the owner and controller of all things, you got to love this, he's my, he's my shepherd. He's your shepherd. But here's the plot twist, and this is when it gets really cool. In the New Testament, the same Greek word, kyrios, the same Greek word, the word translated from God's actual self-given name is the word used for Jesus. The same word. So everything that was written about Yahweh, about God in the Old Testament. Every idea, every thought, every created act, every power can be attributed to Jesus. Everything. The New Testament writers had tons of words to pull from, but they chose this one. They used the word in their Old Testament, in their Greek Old Testament, for God's own name. So, after Jesus' resurrection, after his resurrection, Jesus' followers would read Psalm 23 a little differently. They thought of it a little differently. To them it became this. The Lord Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord Jesus leads me beside still waters. The Lord Jesus restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name, this name. The name of the Lord Jesus is the name for God himself. Jesus has absolute ownership of the world with unrivaled power in the unseeable approachable realm of heaven his name is Yahweh but on earth in the seeable tangible realm in which we live his name is Jesus and that name has wonder working power let me show you the power of my Jesus. 
We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to be there for the rest of our time. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus in what is generally known as his third missionary journey. Ephesus, one of the largest cities in the ancient world. 300,000 people lived shoulder to shoulder in 48 square miles. Ephesus housed the Roman emperor's college of messengers. Communication was a vital industry in Ephesus, so much so that even the roads were paved with marble. And it also had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. It's the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis is in Ephesus. It is four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It had 60-foot columns. The columns were six stories tall. It was decorated by some of the greatest sculptors in the ancient world. In every way, Ephesus was much like New York City in America. But near the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, a riot occurred in the city. And the entire city was looking for blood. We've seen, we've seen mobs. We've seen riots on television in the past couple of years. We know these images happen in Ephesus. Violence, violence was on the brink by a mob, no kidding, of thousands. Because artisans, this is why, artisans who sold shrines and trinkets in honor of this false goddess, Artemis, found their income in jeopardy. And look, the worship of this goddess, Ephesus, um, Artemis was big business in Ephesus. In fact, the mythos of Artemis actually said that she was born in Ephesus. The city calendar in Ephesus was full of month-long celebrations in her honor. These celebrations included music and dancing and festivals and feasting and theatrical productions and even death matches. In fact, across the Roman Empire, from Syria to Spain, there were 33 temples dedicated to artists of Artemis of Ephesus. In every way, Artemis had gone viral. And these celebrations in Ephesus brought people from the suburbs and brought people from all over the world and they brought money with them and celebrated with millions and millions of dollars. But there was an artisan in this city, a shrewd businessman, who realized that his fortune was in jeopardy and instigated a riot that found its way to the city theater. I've got a picture of this theater. This theater in Ephesus, some of you have been there, seated 25,000 people. Can you imagine 25,000 people and a cacophony of screams and voices? All for, all for Artemis. Scripture is quite poetic here, by the way. In Acts chapter 19, verse 23, Luke said, the author of Acts, said that this riot was <laughs> some sarcasm. No little disturbance. No little disturbance. I want you to listen to the description of this riot from Acts chapter 19. When the artisans heard, and I'm going to tell you what they heard in a minute. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of Ephesus. So the city 
the city was filled with confusion. 300,000 people. And they all rushed together into this theater. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not even know why they had come together. Something specific caused this riot. And here's what it was. Ephesus had heard the name of the Lord Jesus, the entire city. Look in Acts chapter 19, verse 17. I love this. Very simple. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I love that word. It was extolled. The name, the name, the name of the Lord Jesus permeated through this city. Miracles happened. Paul's clothing, when laid on the disease, was the catalyst for healing. In this ancient city of magic, the name of the Lord Jesus rendered all spells and all incantations impotent. Even those who tried to duplicate this power were brutally beaten by the possessed because releasing people from demons, it's no magic trick. You can read it all. It's all in Acts chapter 19. And all of these things done in the name of the Lord Jesus caused his name to be revered. Magicians burned their scrolls. People stopped buying trinkets. This proclamation about the name of the Lord Jesus resulted in an economic crisis for those who peddled in the merchandise of this false god. In fact, Roman historians writing a hundred years after this incident said that the sacrifices to the goddess Artemis lessened because of the rise of Christianity in that city. The fears of the artisans in Acts chapter 19 were realized. In fact, listen to this, the economy of the New York City of the Roman Empire never recovered because of the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus affected a change in people that resulted in the change of an entire city. I want you to listen. The name, the name of the Lord Jesus, when given full weight in your life, causes an immediate surrender. Every idol to which you cling, every political opinion you support, and every sexual sin you justify all become worthless in comparison to the name of the Lord Jesus. That is wonder-working power. 